special. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 11. I hope that is your prayer this morning that only Jesus can satisfy. That is the truth. There's a lot of things we can fill our life with that will leave us empty. Solomon learned that in the book of Ecclesiastes. But to know God and to fear Him, and to walk in His ways and be obedient to Him, is the, the only thing that can satisfy is through our relationship with God through His Son. And He's speaking, His Son, Jesus Christ is speaking, God's Son, in Luke chapter 11. In verse 37, I read a little longer section this morning to the end of the chapter. In verse 37, and he spake, uh, as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but the inward part is full of ravening and wickedness, you fools. Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees! For you love the uttermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born. You yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you all allowed the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you lawyers! You have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, he hindered. For as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently, to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they may accuse him. And may God add the blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father. We pray that the scripture that we read this morning would be through the Holy Spirit explained to us so the understanding and application that we can make in our own lives. Would we heed the word of God this morning and be doers of your word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
few weeks ago, I was studying in my office in the later evening, and uh, my light was off in my office as I was studying, had my books around and my computer, and, um, and somebody walked in, and the sun had, had kind of started to, to set a little bit, and the office had, had kind of dimmed, and I'd continued to work, and somebody walked in and, and, and said, do you, do you want me to turn the, your light on? It's dark in here. And I said, sure, and they flipped the light on it, and my, you know, my eyes had not, you know, had, had, had adjusted to the dimness of the room, and it was kind of bright. Interesting, two perspectives there. One person that comes in and notices the darkness needs the light, and another person who has gotten used to the darkness and didn't realize how dark it was in the room. And when the light came on, you realize how much you were missing. You can go bad on your eyes when you do that. My wife is always getting on to me of dimming my phone, you know, or, or something like that. And, and uh, you know, it's not, you can't quite see it. She's like, I can't quite see your phone. Why do you have it so dim? And, uh, and if you're not careful, what you think you are seeing is in fact darkness. And Jesus addressed that in the previous section of the, script, uh, of the Scripture. He had addressed their spiritual blindness. They had called him the devil. They had called him Beelzebub. And the miracles that he was doing was out of the power of Beelzebub. They attempted to get the crowds to turn away from him by claiming that he was acting in the power of the demons. The crowds were looking for more proof. We talked about that last week as they asked for him a sign or more signs. His words and his works were not enough for them. They wanted more, more. They think that they can see. They think that they have the truth. And Jesus uses the parable of the light and the darkness. And the light that you claim to have actually may not be light at all. You may be blind leading people who are blind. You're fooled. Your eye can be evil and as a result your whole body is in darkness and you don't even know it. Jesus addresses that. Now he's not finished. He's got more to say. He's going to address hypocrisy. He's going to hit it head on. The core problem within Judaism and of the people of God. You see, Jesus saved his strongest rebukes, his strongest words, his harshest words to the most religious of the day. Isn't that kind of strange? Not the Romans, not the Egyptians, not the Syrophoenicians, not the Samaritans, but the Jews. The religious elite, those who were steeped into the scrolls, those who knew the Torah, those who were God's people, those who were the people of the covenant, those who were, who were the highest and the most religious and orthodox people of the day, Jesus saved his harshest criticism. He calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites. Later in Matthew, he will call them vipers. And then he pronounces upon them woe. Six, actually, to be precise, from this passage. Verse 41, 43, 44, 46, 47, and 52. Three for the Pharisees, three for the lawyers. Now, the context of this confrontation is in a home. He's been invited to come over for supper and for dinner. And Jesus accepts. And of all people that he accepts the invitation from, it's his 
enemy a Pharisee. This happened before in chapter 7 and verse 36. You remember a Pharisee invited him over potentially to test him and that turned out sour for the host because a woman with an alabaster box came into the room and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus took that as an opportunity and said that since this woman has come in she's not stopped to wash my feet and you didn't wash my feet. She's not stopped to, to, to honor me and you didn't honor me. You didn't offer me any gifts. And you remember Jesus really put the host in his place. That didn't turn out well for that Pharisee in chapter 7. I'm going to tell you it's not going to turn out very well for this Pharisee in this chapter in chapter 11. We need to understand what a Pharisee is. We've come in front of them several times. They've become a prominent role. They are Jesus' strongest opponents along with the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were what we would see as the separated ones. They withdrew themselves from the normal Jewish crowd and they loved to be the protectors of the law. What they wanted to do is they wanted to dedicate themselves to following the law. It sounds noble. And in fact, originally, it was a very noble thing. This was a group of people who during the intertestamental period, we don't find them in the Old Testament, and then we find them in the book of Matthew when the New Testament starts up, this group of Pharisees. Who are they? Well, they were people who wanted to protect the Jewish culture and, the, and, the, and Judaism from the influences of the Greeks and from the Romans and from the Hellenistic culture, and they wanted to, to be dedicated to the Bible. That sounds very good. The problem is, over time, they begin to put fences around the word of God and add their own traditions and then keep people to their own traditions. So eventually over time no longer were they following God's word but they were following man's religious system through these rituals and ceremonies and religious works. They had actually gotten farther from obeying God's word and much closer to a, a, um, a spiritual police officer with their own set of rules. They were the most orthodox. They were the most strict of any religious people. They were the ones who we would say had it all put together. Yet they were constantly challenging Jesus and his disciples just about everything, over just about everything they did and everything they said. So here we have Jesus in the house of a Pharisee and he takes this opportunity as Jesus loves to do to just straighten things out. Cause more problem. Separate and cause a, a larger divide between he and them. Which will end up resulting into them being so utterly mad and angry at him that they will want to put him to death and kill him. The last two verses of this chapter 53 and 54. They want to set a trap for him. They can't wait to get him trapped. And eventually put him to death. So Jesus addresses the Pharisees in these verses when he speaks in verse 39. The controversy begins because the Pharisee, when Jesus comes in and he sits down to eat at the table, he is amazed that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, you've heard of foot washing, hadn't you? Well, this is hand washing here in this passage. And it irritates this gentleman because Jesus doesn't Wash his hands. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with germs and cleanliness. 
It's not that Jesus had dirty hands when he came to the table and, and, and he, he failed to be clean or, or to protect himself and, and everybody else from the germs. This is referring to a ceremonial practice by the Pharisees that had already been taking place for 500 years. The Nazbi actually translates this word to being washed as ceremonially washed. In my margin of my Bible, I have the word ceremony in this term as well. This was a practice where they were ritually washing their hands before they came to the meal. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary a record of the Mishnah and what it says. Here is, here, here's a description of this type of ceremony of washing before you came to the table. And I quote, The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean by pouring water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist and the water floweth back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poureth both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist and the water flows back to the hand and the hand then remains unclean. Is anybody getting what's going on here? If he poured, it goes on, if he poured the first water one on one hand alone, and then bethought himself and poured the second water on the other hand, his hand alone is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rub it on his head and on the wall to dry it, it remains clean. Yadim 2.3 in the Mishnah. This is what the Pharisee is talking about here. It's utterly absurd. It had nothing to do with the law of Moses. Jesus was not breaking any law of God by coming to the table without ceremonially washing his hands to the wrist with the first and second water and rubbing his head. It didn't have anything to do with that. They were making a big deal about nothing. They were making a scene. Because that's the way the Pharisees were. So Jesus speaks in verse 39 on this issue. And the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inward part is full of revening and wickedness. <clears throat> Jesus takes this opportunity to teach a lesson on hypocrisy. Utter foolishness. You guys clean the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside nasty. A few weeks ago, one of my kids came home with one of their lunch bowls that had been left at school for who knows how long. Probably since before Christmas. <laughs> and guess what was inside? Well, I don't really know what it was. But it was, it was gross. It was nasty. And... Let's say, for instance, I took that, that bowl and with the lid on and, and I turned the water faucet on and I took some soap and I washed the outside and got it all clean. And then I went over to the cabinet and made a nice peanut butter and jelly sandwich and opened the lid and set it on the inside and closed the lid back and put it back in their book bag. That would be gross for them to eat that. 
out of that bowl. To clean up the outside and leave the inside untouched. Jesus says to these Pharisees, you focus on the outward, but you don't give any attention to the inward. Jesus is saying, what you do outwardly may not reflect who you are inwardly. You follow that? The outside looks clean. It looks put together. But inside the heart, it's filled with trash and rot. See the words that Jesus uses? On the inside, he said, you are full of revening and wickedness. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can look inside your eye, down to your very inner person, and I can see you may have it put together on the outside, but I can see the heart. Samuel said this, man looketh upon the outward appearance, but it is God that looks on the heart. He sees what we cannot see. And you cannot dress up the outward with rules and rituals and good works and hand washings. And be fine in your heart. Jesus says, you fools. Now that's, that's not something you would say to your host on a normal occasion. Unless you have grounds like Jesus did. Don't, don't call your host a fool. But Jesus has strong words. Because he is hitting the heart of what is going on in Judaism. First, clean the inside. Then, clean the outside. And his statement in, um, in verse 40, You fools, did not he that made that which is without also make that which is within? In other words, God made both. He made your body and he made your spirit and your soul. And he's concerned with both of them. Warren Risby says this, The way to clean up a dirty vocabulary is not to brush your teeth, but clean your heart. You, you don't fix your words by gargling your, your, um, your, your mouthwash and brushing your teeth. You fix it from your heart. And I asked you this morning as a source of application, are you playing a part? Are you pretending to be something that you are not? That is the ultimate definition of a hypocrite. Someone who is an actor. Amber read a biography a few years ago of a famous actor that she admired and watched. An actor who played some wholesome roles, family-friendly, funny, Good role model on the screen. He was loved by conservative families and the good old days of television. But it was all an act. He was a scoundrel, a drunk, a womanizer, foul mouth. His family hated him. His family fell apart, multiple marriages. You see, outward, outwardly on TV, he looked good. But it was all fake. I was curious last week when I saw video on an old interview of the Three Stooges. You watched the Three Stooges when you were younger? Maybe you still do. It's all right. 
It was interesting to see them sitting at a picnic table with their wives and their children and not see them poking each other in the eye and slapping each other or with the pies or whatever. But they were actually introducing their wives and their children and their real characters. You see, oftentimes I think what happens in the Christian life is we play a role. We're movie stars. We're actors, and we do a really good job at it. That's exactly what Jesus is addressing here with the Pharisees. You may be put together on the outward, but I can see your heart. And I want to tell you this morning, God can see your heart. He looks through your eye gate, and he looks down into your heart, and he knows the light that is there, or the darkness that is there. And he and he alone can determine who you truly are. You know that. You can put on a face for us. You can put on a face even for your family or for your co-workers, for your neighbors. But God knows who you are in your heart. Jesus then pronounces three woes on the Pharisees. And he's going to detail some things about being a hypocrite. He, he's, these are also recorded in Matthew chapter 23, very similar. So we know that Jesus is constantly addressing these issues and there are six of them, and there's three for the Pharisees and three for the religious elite. And we have the time this, evening, uh, this morning that I want to quickly go through them as best we can. But I think it's important as you look through these woes, compare yourself in your life right now and where you are and examine your heart. And do you meet these qualifications or are you in this category? The very first thing that Jesus addresses in verse 42 is this issue of tithing. The issue of these details. You tithe of your mint and rue and all your herbs and yet you pass over judgment and you pass over loving God. Now granted, they tithed. That's more than what most Christians do. I read you a statistic a year or so ago about this time from Time Magazine that stated the average Christian gives less than 1.3% of their income to the Lord every year. Those who make between $10,000 and $20,000 annually give 3%. But those who make more than $75,000 annually give less than 1.6% of their annual income. Now that's a different problem. But granted, they were tithing. The issue here that Jesus rebukes of the Pharisees is that they were over tithing. You would think that would be a good thing for the church, for people to over-tithe, or for the synagogue or the temple. But you see, Jesus addresses the detail. The law required the Jews to pay a tithe of their possessions. But the law did not get into the minutia or the detail of how that was to live out. People were to use their brains. The law was not specific enough, necessarily, God required obedience, but he was not unkind. He was not impractical. There was never a requirement to tithe on every bean, every herb, every mint, and every rue. In fact, the Mishnah says, which I quoted earlier, says rue, goosefoot, purslin, hill coriander, celery, and eureka were all exempt from tithing. But the Pharisees tithed on them anyway. So picture this. A farmer goes out into his field and starts counting every 
bean. And for every tenth bean, he sets it aside for God. You see, God never meant for them to do that. That would take hours and hours. The detail in, in tithing every tenth mint leaf. Yet the people did just that and then boasted at the exactness of their tithe. The point here is that Jesus is saying, you focus on the simple details of every single bean and every single leaf, but you forget and overlook the actual commands of God. Be kind to your neighbor and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus is not really condemning them tithing as much as he is about pointing out their wrong priorities. You want to be a good hypocrite? Then pick out the speck of other people's eye and forget the beam in yours. That's what makes a good hypocrite. Look for the detailed beams of somebody else and forget the giant log that you're ignoring. These people were counting beans and mint leaves, but harshly judging others and could care less about what it actually meant to love God. Listen, how easy it is to check boxes on a daily religious ritual rather than actually treating people with kindness, being honest in your workplace, and being patient with your children, reading your Bible when no one's looking. Tell me, which one is it easier to do? to fill out some kind of checklist of going to church and singing a song and praying a prayer and giving a tenth or actually being genuine at home and loving your wife and your children and being honest on your taxes. That's what Jesus is pointing out. I don't mean to be harsh, but I just mean this is a principle because I've had it done and I've seen it. I've known people who, can come, who come to me and criticize what version some person uses or what restaurant some person went to and that same person misses or how a person misses a service and then that person turn around and scream and yell at their kids to get in the car, secretly hide porn on their computer and haven't picked up their Bible to personally read it in weeks. You see, everybody else has the problem and I'm going to pick out the details while all along hiding the real you from public view. Does that hit anyone personally? How easy it is to be a hypocrite. Woe to you who love the best seats, verse 43, he says. For you love the utmost seats in the synagogues and you love the greetings in the marketplace. In other words, they love the attention, the utmost seats. This is not the nosebleed section in the auditorium. These seats were in a circle around a synagogue. You've seen some pictures. The seat that was most prominent was right behind the speaker on the platform. So when a person came in, if you were the most important, the seat that you sought after was not the one way up in the balcony or way in the back, but was the one right behind the preacher. Because there were two things that were important when you sat right behind the preacher. Number one, you could see everybody. 
Remember, it's important to make sure you pick out the speck in everybody else's eye. When the preacher starts preaching on being a good husband, yeah, that's you, I know that. Mm -hmm, yep, you. Lying on your taxes, mm, I've seen you, yep, I know you. But more importantly, not only being able to see everyone else, but everyone else can see you. So when the preacher preaches on something really sad, you can really be sad too. When the preacher preaches on something that is really glad, you can nod your head and be really glad too. And everybody knows it. When the preacher starts talking about someone who, who is a great role model, you can, you can just sit up straight in your seat and your you know, uh, shoulders are back and your chin is up and you can say, I know he's talking about me. And you can remind everybody he's talking about you. When someone talks about, you know, one of these things and you can say, in, you, in approval, you can nod your head or in disapproval, depending on what the point would be. People could see you and your agreement to everything that is being said. That's why Jesus also points out about going to the marketplace. This would be like going down to Bridge Street or walking around the mall, showing your faith to everyone else. Waiting for someone to come up to you and say, Oh, Dr. Mr. Cup so clean. We just love your presence at our church this week. I can't believe how wonderful it is to have your presence grace us every week with such wonderful expressions upon the platform. And then to walk away with a pat on the back. You see, they valued public opinion more than God's opinion. They would rather people see them play a part than actually have a relationship with God. It was all a show. One pre preacher wrote this, in the, from this verse, that he had saved a flyer from a church advertisement that had on the front, come here our all-star worship band. Come here our awesome worship band we have our own all-stars if we're not careful and we love to promote the attention of man instead of focusing our relationship upon God Jesus addresses their love for the best seats Jesus also addresses them and being unmarked Graves, unwashed graves. You see that in verse 44. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are as graves which appear not. That means you're graves with no stone. And that men when they walk over, they're not aware they're walking over a grave. This would be an unwashed or an unmarked grave. You see... When it says a grave that appears not, you, the law stated that when a person touched a tomb or a grave, they were to be unclean for seven days. Touching a dead body or a tomb made a person unclean. So every year the Jewish people would whitewash their tombs. They would paint them white and paint the markers of the grave white so they were clearly marked. You can go to Jerusalem today and look over on the Mount of Olives and you can see the whitewashed tombs that are still done today. 
No one would accidentally walk over a grave or touch a gravestone or a tomb on accident and be unclean because they were clearly marked. Jesus is saying here that these hypocrites are like graves without headstones, graves without being washed, graves that don't have markers. And when people walk by them, they become unclean. Jesus is saying, you are not making people closer to God. You are actually causing people to be farther from God. You think you're clean, but in fact you're not. You think you're helping people, but in fact you're not. You think you can see, but in fact you can't. You are hindering people from knowing God. The most damaging testimony in the Christian church that is caused today in America is the issue of hypocrisy. People who are religious but not genuine. People who play the part in public but they're not real. I'm not saying that we have to be sinless. Church is made up of sinners saved by grace. But it is, the, it is the ones or the ones who claim to have it all in order when in fact they don't care about their relationship with God and refuse to deal with things in their heart. It's the father who lives one way at church but another way at home and his children know it. It's the mother who puts on a face at church but slanders and gossips on the way home in the car. The children in the back seat who see a family that is put together playing a part, but they're all fake. It's one of the reasons why the next generation of Christians and believers are walking away from the church. A hypocrite will never help you get closer to God. You need to be around people who are real. You need to be around someone who is genuine. The story goes that the Chinese or, a Chinese orchestra performed every year in front of the emperor. Hundreds of people would pack this orchestra to play their instruments for their king. It was a high honor to be part of this orchestra. Many would practice long hours and hard work to be accepted. It paid well. And the members of, orchestra, of the orchestra were highly respected in their neighborhoods. But one member of this orchestra was a fake. He had never played very well, and he had very little training. He had a political connection and made it into the flute section over here. When they would perform or practice, he would put the flute up to his mouth and pretend. Suspicion began to surround the orchestra that there was a fake in the midst. So the king announced that the instrumentalist would all appear before him in person and play a solo. That fake had made it this far, but could not figure out how to get out of his predicament. He claimed that he was sick, but then the servants were sent to his home. He was forced to come before the king, and as he drew near, he pulled out a sword. He killed himself. And it is from this tragic story, whether it's true or it's a myth, that the phrase comes, he refused to face the music. You see, someone who refuses to face the music can't handle the truth. 
They don't want to be accountable. They don't want people to know who they really are. The answer is don't pretend. Be real. Be honest. Face the music. And if today you need to come before your children and you need to ask for forgiveness and apologize because you've been playing a role, be honest, be real. That'll be the best thing for your family than to continue to live on a role. Maybe with your friends. Stop playing a part. Can I say something here as well? Some of you may have a criticism that all Christians are fakes. I've heard it before, that all people who are in church are phonies and hypocrites. You think everybody in church is pretending. I want to challenge you on two areas. First, genuine people are not perfect people. If you are looking for a perfect church with perfect Christians, I want to tell you something, you'll never find it because it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. But I want to tell you, real people are real because they're honest about their problems and they want to try and work on it. They're willing to admit that they make mistakes and they need forgiveness and that they're growing in the Lord. And they seek forgiveness and try to make things right, do right. That doesn't mean they're always perfect. They make mistakes. And second, most of the time when someone believes all Christians are fake, it is because they have either never truly known a real believer or they have been deeply hurt by one who was fake. They've never gotten close enough to a real humble believer to actually see who they are. A person off in the corner all alone from a distance is not a good judge of someone who is real or not. Have you been to their home? Have you asked their children? Have you spent time with them around the table talking? Have you sat down and asked them questions and got to know them? Have you heard them pray in person? Have you taken their Bible out and flipped it open to see if there are notes? Have you... Have you examined their attention in the services? Do you see how receptive they are with their spouse and asking for forgiveness? Seeking to do what's right? Sometimes we're not willing enough to, to dig a little deeper to get to know someone who is genuine. And I want to tell you, there are some genuine people in our church who love the Lord. Not perfect people, genuine people. And I've known some genuine people in my life. And I'm thankful for them. But I've also known some hypocrites too. And they're just as hard to spot at times. Jesus then addresses, and we need to go quickly, the last three. And just for the sake of time, I will just go through them very quickly with you. In verses 45 down to the end of the chapter, Jesus turns and addresses the lawyers. Because one of the lawyers asked the question and said, Jesus, basically, what you're saying, you're attacking us. This is making us uncomfortable when you start calling us fools and hypocrites when we've been trying to uphold the law. Jesus said, oh, by the way, I've got three things to say to you too. The lawyers here are the scribes. 
They would have been the experts in the law. Anyone that had a question about the law, they would have come to a scribe or lawyer. Don't think of legal law. Think of religious law. These would have been the people who, who, who wrote down and memorized and were the ultimate authorities on the Scripture. Remember when the wise men came to Herod seeking where the child would be born? Herod turned to the scribes and says, where is it recorded in the Scripture that he would be born? These were the experts of the law. The Pharisees were the ones who were the enforcers of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees worked together. One interpreted the Bible, the other um, uh, 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 observed and made sure people obeyed what the scribes said. They worked together. The three illustrations that he uses here, and Warren Wiersbe points this out in his commentary, burdens, tombs, and keys. Burdens, Jesus says and addresses here in verse 46, you lay men onto men, burdens that are grievous for them to bear, but you don't touch one of them to help them out. In other words, they delight in laying on the common people these heavy burdens of the detail of the law. Count your beans. Count your mint. Count your rue. Count your steps on the Sabbath day. How many times did you turn the lamp on and the lamp off? Did you carry a load? Did you carry, a, 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 and how far did you carry it? Did you set it down? Did you pick it back up? All of these. One estimation is that there were over 6,000 additional rules and laws that the scribes and Pharisees had added onto and fenced around the Scripture. Yet they themselves did nothing to help people carry these heavy burdens. In other words, they didn't make it easy. What does Jesus say about carrying loads? Matthew 11 says this, Come unto me, all you are who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy. It's not harsh. It doesn't rub. And my burden is light. Jesus promised to help these believers and these people who truly wanted to know the truth, he showed them how that they can know how to, to, to release their burdens and find forgiveness. That's not what the scribes and Pharisees did. In verse 47 down to 51, he gives this illustration, example, about the prophets. These tombs that they built to honor their prophets. But their forefathers were the ones who put them to death. One generation puts them to death. The next generation is guilty about it and builds a monument to them. One prophet spoke. When a prophet spoke, he spoke the words of God. So to kill a prophet meant you stopped the word of God. We have many preachers today who talk about current events and self-help steps, but never truly give the word of God. Those places are shallow and lost. They wouldn't know a true Bible study if they saw one. So when you go to the Mount of Olives today, you will be able to see the whitewashed tombs along the edge of the Mount of Olives. But on the bottom portion of the Kidron Valley, there are these huge monuments that date back um, to around the time of 1000 B.C., David's time. And they were monuments that were built in dedication to these prophets. To honor them. They've long been robbed. And they're empty. And now they stand as a good place to hike at night. Kind of spooky. I've done it. 
You could probably do it too if you go on the Israel trip with us. They're really neat. Jesus is speaking of those tombs. The first prophet killed in the Bible in the Old Testament was Abel. The last one was Zechariah. There are two Zacharias in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 24 and the book of Zechariah. And interesting enough, both of them were killed. Both of them were killed for speaking the truth and put to death for speaking the truth. And Jesus says here, as he said earlier, there's one that is greater than Jonah in your midst. And what are you going to do with him? The last illustration that Jesus leaves is he talks about this key of knowledge in verse 52. These scribes and lawyers claim to have this hidden knowledge of the Bible. And no one can know the Bible except they come through them first. They had this hidden key when in fact what they were doing is they were blocking the door to people for true salvation. Jesus was standing in direct opposition to their, their, their generation. Jesus was saying, I am the door. And no one can come unto the Father but by me. Get out of the way. In Sparta, we had a magnetic key box for our front door. I lived next door to the church, and so I would go back and forth and Sometimes when my wife would leave, she would lock the doors. And sometimes when she was there, she would lock the doors. I remember one time I left my keys on the inside of the house and I came home and the door was locked. And I couldn't get in. What was I going to do for lunch? Ah, I've got the magnetic key hidden in the garage. So I went into the garage and I looked around for it. It wasn't where I'd put it, I thought, the last time. I do remember moving it because somebody in the church knew where it was. So I moved it, but I couldn't remember where I moved it. So here I am looking under the lawnmower, looking behind the freezer, looking up on the rack, looking all, all around. I could not remember where I hid the key. What use is a spare key if you can't remember where it is? So I went back to church sulked and pouted a little bit until eventually we were able to come together and find the key. You see, Jesus is not a light that can be set in a bushel or under a lid or under a bed. Yet sometimes Christians make it hard for people to find Jesus. A hypocrite can be a hindrance and a blockage to stand in the way of the true gospel for someone to really know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. A hypocrite will block the way from people knowing the truth. Stop being a hypocrite. Stop hiding your sin. Be honest and genuine. God knows your heart already. God is not necessarily demeaning that we work on the things that are outwardly. But first, work on the heart. Be honest with who you are. Father, I pray as we close this morning. Lord, a genuine reflection of who we are. And maybe there are some people who have been playing a part. I, I would not doubt that there are some people in the auditorium or listening online who claim to be Christians. Who have claimed to said some prayer or written some testimony somewhere. But actually on the inside, they're fake and they know it. 
They have no desire to truly love God. They have no desire to truly show the fruits of their faith in their life by being kind and obedient and loving mercy and doing justice. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to take a very long, serious look at their heart that you can see. And that this morning, if they're trusting their good works or uh, some ritual or act or washing some ceremonially in some way to, to fix their heart that is not going to do that. You don't fix your, your, um, your words by brushing your teeth. And Lord, I pray that we would first clean the inside and then work on the outside. For those who struggle as a, as a believer playing a role or playing a part, would we work on being genuine? With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, would you stand to your feet before we close the service? Thank you for your attention to the Word of God. An invitation is an opportunity for you to, before we're dismissed, before we walk out, to just take a moment to go to the Lord between you and the Lord and say, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to confess? What decision do I need to make before I leave this service? And sometimes that can be coming forward and, and praying. Sometimes that, a public um, acknowledgement can help to solidify a decision. That may mean um, kneeling there where you are or sitting at your seat or praying quietly where you are. Or maybe after the service, you, you'd like to pray with someone. We'd love, love to have an opportunity to help you. But what's most important is that you deal with business between you and the Lord. What's going on in your heart? So as the instrumentalists play through a couple times, we're just going to take a moment this morning to pray, reflect, before we go to eat, before we go home, and we examine our own hearts. What's, what's going on, on the inside of the cup? The Lord is here, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And maybe I'd ask this question, what are you trusting in for your salvation? You're trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in some ritual that you've done? It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's only according to His mercy that He saved us. Maybe a sober question this morning is, are you being a hindrance to your children or your grandchildren, your co-workers, by pretending to be one thing when you're really something else? That can go both ways. You can be a believer and live like the world. That's a hypocrite. Or you can be a part of the world and look like a believer. That's a hypocrite too. That they play through one more time before we dismiss the service. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the power of the Word of God that can pierce um, even into our soul and our spirit. 
I pray, Lord, that as we go home today, would we contemplate if we need to have a hard conversation with our families or um, we need to get alone with you and be real about who we are. Maybe there's someone here that truly needs to trust Christ as their Savior because they've been playing a part. Bless us, and Lord, would all of us, would we seek to be genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, truly loving you, showing mercy, our judgment and decisions are kind towards other people, and that we truly are genuine in, in our walk with the Lord and honest about who we are. In Jesus' name we pray.